Good morning. Hey, everybody online. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. So, are we rooting for Tampa Bay today? It's, it's, that's kind of automatic. Yeah? No. <laughs> There's always a few. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really is something what Brady did for the team, though. There's, you've heard that saying, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. And he's done that for Tampa Bay, win or lose. Anyway, yeah, we're going to have um, uh, partake together in communion. And I wanted to let you know, we have this ongoing issue uh, in the church that to send out the e-news, the e-newsletter that goes out weekly, we need two online programs to kind of work together, and that still is sometimes a problem for us. So um, it would be awesome for you that if you have signed up to receive that e-newsletter, it comes usually on Thursday, sometimes Friday. If you don't get it and you signed up, let us know so we can continue to work on that. We had a few issues this week, too. Uh, so we're, di- we're still trying to get that all worked out. So there's that. Okay, Nehemiah. I was thinking, uh, we're going to talk about overcoming discouragement today. I was thinking of calling it, um, um, what was I thinking of calling it? Defeating discouragement, because it's alliterated, and pastors love alliteration. But then I thought, you know, I don't think we're ever going to defeat discouragement this side of heaven. I think that's a thing that we'll always be dealing with, but we can move towards overcoming discouragement. And I think that the passages, it's, a, it's two chapters today, uh, three and four, uh, speak to us about overcoming discouragement. So, probably people in this room or people online have visited the Sistine Chapel. Uh, it's in the Vatican. It's Michelangelo's nine renowned paneled frescoes depicting Genesis. And some people think, a lot of people think, that it is the most exquisite art in the history of humanity. Something you might not know is that Michelangelo suffered from depression and discouragement. He actually wrote a poem while he was working on the Sistine Chapel. You could find it online, the whole thing, if you want. But the final stanza of the poem says this. He says, my painting is dead. Defend it for me, Giovanni. Protect my honor. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter. Wow. To think that he struggled. And I think he wrote that on the wall as he was painting. He's on his back, right? For a lot of it, he's on his back painting. And I think he wrote, I am not a painter. He wrote that on the ceiling or the wall, whichever part he was working on. Author C.S. Lewis said this, if Satan's arsenal of weapons were restricted to a single one, it would be discouragement. Discouragement is a disorder for every human being on the planet, uh, except maybe Eeyore. We kind of let him be discouraged all the time. But it's a universal thing. Eventually, every one of us will wrestle with discouragement. 
And there's probably no doubt that there's people in this room right now, people online, people at home, that are really, really struggling with dis uh, discouragement today, right now. It's been a tough year. As I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe, there's no guarantee that this year is going to be any better. It's looking good, starting to look good. Vaccines are coming, etc. cetera. Uh, but there's no guarantees. That's why we're going to look at Nehemiah 3 and 4 today, overcoming discouragement. Uh, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah just to go back and set some of the context for you. After 70 years of captivity, the Jewish people were given an opportunity to return to their homeland. Now, it's thought that between two and three million people left, were captured, and went into Babylon, two to three million people. Only about 50,000 of those people decided to return. And the book of Nehemiah begins 13 years after the book of Ezra ends. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were, at first, they were just, it was just one book. And Ezra was still around when Nehemiah gets there, as we'll find out in coming weeks. But 13 years after Ezra ends is when Nehemiah comes, and it's about 100 years after the captives began to filter back into Jerusalem and the surrounding area, and about 150 years after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the walls of the city were still in rubble. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that the temple... The original temple built by Solomon looked like the Taj Mahal, and the temple at the time looked more like the local Elks Club. And so that was discouraging to the people too. It just wasn't the same, right? Um, and so what we see here is to put this in perspective, we've just endured, you know, one really depressing, discouraging, year, and I don't want to make light of that, the Israelites endured 150 years of tough times. And I hope that makes you feel just a little bit better right now. It could have been a lot worse. And Nehemiah's heart was broken over the condition of Jerusalem. His heart was broken over the people who lived there and were still filtering back into the area. He hears the name of God is, is not being honored in the surrounding area. The exiles that are returning are not being protected. You could think of it like this. It would be like if you lived in your home or your apartment and you had no front door. And there was no police force. What would that do to your peacefulness? What would that do to your work life? What would that do to your rest life? You didn't have a front door, no police force, marauders coming and going. That's what was going on here in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah caught something that he wanted to see happen. Also, by way of review, Nehemiah is a preview of both Jesus and the church. Nehemiah points to Jesus in that he left the comfort, the opulence of the palace to step into the rubble of the city walls and the rubble of some really deeply 
discouraged people. And Nehemiah also points us to the church in that we have the same calling. We, we are called, the church is called to step into the rubble of a broken world and offer hope, offer the supreme encouragement of the gospel and everything else that it entails. So Nehemiah points us to Jesus. Nehemiah points us to the church. And those are some things that we can learn as we walk through this book. Nehemiah is a man who loves God and loves people. He has a passion for God, and he has compassion for people. And most of you probably know that the word compassion literally means to suffer with. Come alongside passion, which used to mean a lot about suffering. Come passion. Passion for God, compassion for people. And today we will see the people begin to rise up, begin to build the wall It's a beautiful picture of the church working together. Nehemiah rallies the people, and he reminds him, reminds them that the good hand of God is upon them. We saw this in chapter 2. Ezra uses that phrase a few times too, and the good hand of God was upon us. And I just want to stop and say that I've been here, I think, 17 months walking with you, And almost every staff meeting we have, weekly staff meeting, we talk about the good hand of God that's been upon Community Covenant Church. Almost every staff meeting. I have seen seen God move in some ways here that I've never seen in any other church. And every, almost every staff meeting and every single elders meeting, we talk about that. We look at the finances, we look at other reports of the church as elders, et cetera, And we cannot believe sometimes how the good hand of God has been upon this church. And so we can say that, and I hope that becomes a phrase that we use on a pretty regular basis. And the good hand of God is, not was, is upon us. We should notice that the wall in Jerusalem was much smaller in Nehemiah's time than than the old city wall it is today. And so that's, this is today more or less, and that's Nehemiah's time, that wall. So when we get to it, we're going to find out that the wall was rebuilt in like 52 days or something, it's some crazy amount of time, and um, that's why it's just a little smaller than what we think of. So what I'd like to do, I'm going to read the first five verses of Nehemiah 3 and the first nine verses of 4. And then we'll get into it a little bit. We're going to cover all of those chapters, but I, I didn't think... There's a lot of names in there that, that are hard to pronounce. So I'm going to leave that to you. So I didn't practice as much as I probably should have. So anyway, Nehemiah 3, um, starting in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Henenel. Next to him, the men of Jericho, so people from Jericho, came up to help them build. And, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Emeri, built now the sons of Hassan- Hassaniah, 
built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebub, I don't know, Meshezebub, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs. Chapter 4, now it came about that when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. And then it doesn't say that Nehemiah praised this prayer. It, somebody did. Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their reproach upon their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forget their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Now, I'd like to stop there and say that's an inappropriate prayer. There's a word for it. It's called imprecatory prayers, and they're called prayers of judgment. And we see this in the Psalms as well. And as we move into the New Testament, uh, it's better that we not pray these kinds of imprecatory prayers. It's better that we pray. We, we might see somebody out there who we think is evil and wrong and pray for God's judgment on them. But Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. And there's a phrase in there that I think covers this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we take it back to an invitation for God to bring salvation to his people. I'd like to remind you that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a terrorist before he became a Christian. He was a terrorist, what we call today a terrorist. And God saved him. And that is to be our prayer moving forward. Uh, things happen as we go from Old Testament to New Testament. Imprecatory prayers are rarely, I heard John Piper talk about it once, well, he talked about the Gestapo, you know. If they're marauding through and you pray for God to, um, uh, to judge them or, or something like that, there's, there's rare instances, but it's not something that we should do. I've taken too long on that, but I think in this moment in history, it's probably good for us to, to cover that. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites 
heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Let's pray together. Lord, we just dedicate this time to you. Uh, As usual, you be the teacher. Where you need to affirm, encourage us, where you need to confront us, we give you that permission now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's three main points that uh, I saw from the text that I think we should consider, we would do well to consider uh, each one to help us defeat discouragement uh, in our lives and in our country. I don't know how to say it, but it's a discouraging time. So the first one, there is a place. You've got you to gotta get these points from the text either. I can't just use this to jump out and talk about other things. We've got to find our points in the text. So first one, there's a place for everyone to serve in the mission of God. When people are on mission with God, there will always, 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 always be opposition. And then thirdly, the response to opposition is at least fourfold. A rhythm of prayer, strategic planning, strong and humble leadership, and attentiveness. Those are some things that will help us uh, overcome discouragement. So let's go back and look at those one at a time. There's a place for everyone to serve in the mission of God. First of all, we need to ask, what is the mission of God? And I'm, uh, I'm preaching to the choir at some point here because most people online, most people in this room know what the mission of God is. It's, it's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, into the rubble and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the mission of God. Go, turn outward, look outward, look past yourself, go and make disciples. And here's what I would say. If you're a believer uh, and you don't have any unchurched friends, you don't hang out at all with people who are not believers, who are not churched, I think you're being disobedient to God. I think we need to have that in our lives. That that's, that's part of the go that we turn outward and, and, and be willing, be able, joyfully, hopefully, to engage with people who don't know God. Now, getting back to Nehemiah 3, uh, we talk about who worked on the walls and the gates. Who did that? Uh, priests. People from surrounding towns and villages, chapter 3, verses 2 and 4. We see goldsmiths working on the wall. We see perfumers working on the wall, chapter 3, verse 8. Merchants, chapter 3, verse 32. Civic officials, chapter 3, 14 and 16. We see women working on the wall, chapter 3, verse 12. The temple servants all came out to help make repairs on the wall, chapter 3, verse 26. And Nehemiah assigned people to repair portions of the wall outside their own homes. Folks, this is freaking genius. It's okay to say freaking, isn't it? Eh, Okay, sorry. Um, 
This is genius, because if, if I am building, repairing the wall outside your front door, I'd like to think that I would make it as strong as if it were outside my front door, but I can't promise you that I would. I'd like to think I would, but I don't know if I would. So to have people repair, work on the wall outside their front door, genius. It's a genius leadership principle. Whatever God, whenever God is going to do something, he wants to do it through all of his people. This chapter becomes a beautiful picture of the church, as I've mentioned. Every person has a place, an important role to play. There's some high-profile positions, right? But somebody had to work on the dung gate. You know what the dung gate is, right? Somebody, like, volunteered or was assigned to work on the dung gate. And sometimes, I think we all need to take a place, a turn, at the dung gate. I think it's good for us all to hang out there, and, may, and some of you obviously have. There are several different metaphors for the church that's used throughout the New Testament. Uh, the human body, body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2.15 talks about one new man. Another is family. So all these metaphors, right? Peter uses construction language when he's talking about the church. 1 Peter 2.5, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. I wonder if he's thinking about Nehemiah as he's writing that letter. And there's a, a pastor and an author, J.D. Greer, he wrote a book called Gaining by losing, why the future belongs to churches that send or go, but he used the word send, and he says we need to make this fundamental shift in how we think about the mission of the church. And he illustrates his point with three different types of ships, ships, in case you thought I said something else. Yeah, there's that. Um, he says some some churchgoers see it, their church as a cruise liner, offering Christian luxuries for the whole family, sports and entertainment, childcare services, and business networking. They show up at church asking, can this church improve my religious quality of life? Does it have good family ministry facilities? Does the pastor preach funny, time-conscious messages? Not really. Sometimes, every once in a while. Uh, do they meet my felt needs? Do I like the music? That's a cruise ship church mentality. If their church ever ceases to stop catering to their preferences, well, there are plenty of other cruise ships in the harbor. In fact, some people often get involved with three or four or five different cruise ships. And then he writes about a second church. is like a battleship. The church is made for mission, and its success should be seen in how loudly and dramatically it fights for the mission. It's certainly better than a cruise ship. However, it implies that the church as an institution does most of the fighting and that the church members pay the staff to do the fighting, which is not what the Bible says. And then Greer suggests a third metaphor for the church, 
that of an aircraft carrier. He says, like battleships, aircraft carriers engage in the battle, but not in the same way. Aircraft carriers prepare and equip planes to carry out the battle elsewhere. So they'll launch people into ministry, and Greer says that's the kind of ship the church should be, an aircraft carrier, launching people into their calling and into their ministry. This is why he says so many people have become bored with church. There has to be more than simply coming and listing week after week. The church does not necessarily need more programs. What it needs is more people who take ownership of God's mission, to be willing to step into the rubble, to move from being consumers to contributors or contenders for the mission of God. People who will say, I want to do my part. I want to join the mission of God and be a part of something bigger than myself. The people who jumped in to rebuild the wall were normal people who had discovered that God was really up to something here. The good hand of God was upon them. They wanted to bring what they had to the table and contribute. And getting involved in the mission of the church, it it doesn't guarantee that we will never experience discouragement again. But it will focus us on something bigger than ourselves. I think it will reduce the weight of discouragement that tends to sit on our souls. I think it fights back against that. Brings us to number two. When people are on mission with God, they will always, there will always be opposition. You remember back we studied the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular, that the final Beatitude is persecution. That that's part of the Christian life. And you, when we engage in the mission of God, we will always face opposition. We will always face persecution. And I always like to remind people that like Jesus, that persecution often comes from religious or moralistic people. That's where Jesus experienced it. I think that's where I've experienced opposition the most in my ministry life uh, as a leader. So there are three forms of opposition that are listed in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. The first one is outright ridicule and taunting that leads to demoralization. Now, a couple weeks ago, we added a piece, a quote, to the children's, the the elementary um, curriculum on Nehemiah. And it was a quote about criticism. And I wanted to read you that quote today. Some of you parents who downloaded that have probably already seen it. But there's a book out there that I just want to recommend to everybody. It's called Spiritual Leadership Principles of Excellence for Every Believer. When I became a Christian in the uh, mid-1970s, I was really young. Uh, But when I became a Christian then, it was one of the core books as I began to get involved in leadership types. It was one of the core books of leadership back then. I still come across lots of churches today where spiritual leadership by J. Oswald Sanders is still a core book in terms of leadership. And so there's a little section on criticism there. Let me read this to you from J. Oswald Sanders. He says this, no leader... And I would say no Christian is exempt from criticism. 
And one's humility will nowhere be seen more clearly than in the manner in which one accepts and reacts to it. And then he talks about a guy named Samuel Brengel, which if I remember correctly, was an early uh, Salvation Army guy. Samuel Brengel, who was noted for his sense of genuine holiness, had been subjected to caustic criticism. Instead of replying in kind or resorting to self-justification, he replied, from my heart, I thank you for your rebuke. I think I deserved it. Will you, my friend, remember me in prayer? So you get criticized by somebody, you say, oh, yeah, would you pray for me? On another occasion, a biting, censorous attack was made on his spiritual life, and this was his answer. I thank you for your criticism of my life. It set me to self-examination and heart-searching and prayer, which always leads me into a deeper sense of my utter dependence on Jesus for holiness of heart and into sweeter fellowship with him. You receive caustic criticism, and you say, thank you. This will help me get to know Jesus better. What are they going to say? That is awesome. And that's also how Jesus responded. Well, most of the time. The religious guys, he was a little more direct with. The second form of opposition is personal discouragement. Nehemiah 4.10, we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Personal discouragement can be amplified by the lingering rubble in our own lives. Things like pride, unreasonable guilt and shame, anger, lust, fear, materialism. We become secure in our insecurities. At least those are familiar to us. So we just... We can just lay in the rubble of our own junk. There's been several famous preachers over the years that have suffered from se severe depression. One is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We looked at him back when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount, one of my literary mentors, and he was a medical doctor who became a pastor and pastored in London in mid-20th century and suffered, again, from severe depression. He even ended up writing a book about it called Spiritual Depression. And this is what he wrote in his book, and I think I shared this back when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote in his book, Spiritual Depression, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The guy's a medical doctor, famous, awesome, preacher and pastor, and this really is the central piece of his book on spiritual depression. He says, we spend more time listening to ourselves than talking to ourselves. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you. 
So what he's saying here is his soul has been repressing him. His soul has been crushing him. And finally, he, <clears throat> excuse me, he stands up and says, self, I want you to listen for a moment. I've been listening. Now I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to tell you who God is. I'm going to tell you what God has done. And he says that's one of the best ways to get out of our spiritual depression or discouragement. A third form of op opposition is friendly fire. You look at uh, Nehemiah 4.12. When the Jews who lived near them in the nearby area came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So what they're saying is, hey, don't rock the boat. We've been eking out a living here. We're not dead. And you're rocking the boat. Stop it. So that's called friendly fire, right? And so that leads us to the third point. Number three, the response to opposition is a rhythm of prayer, strategic planning, strong and humble leadership, and attentiveness. We don't have time to take much time. Just want to go through these quickly. We have seen a rhythm of prayer throughout the Nehemiah narrative up to this point. And I think I've mentioned this too, that you could do a, a, a series just on prayer from the book of Nehemiah. Because one of the things about Nehemiah is he's consistently, in, and the people become consistently devoted to prayer. When tough time comes, they go to prayer. And for a lot of us, it's kind of the last thing we try. If nothing else works, well, I guess we should pray. That's kind of how it can happen sometimes if we're not careful. So there's this rhythm of prayer. Verse 9 of chapter 4, but we prayed to our God. We see the effect of Nehemiah's strategic planning in verse 13 and, and verses 16 to 20. Uh, verse 13, then I, then I stationed men on the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, their spears, and their, and, and their bows. Again, this is kind of leadership genius. It's, it's he's pre-thinking, and, and where do we need to be? What needs to happen here for this all to go well? It takes some pre-thought and some planning, and it needs to be strategic. That's one of the best reasons for us to study Nehemiah. We see here in Nehemiah that, that prayer and planning are not at odds with each other. Uh, that's so important for us to see here. Nehemiah models for us this biblical balance of waiting on God in prayer as well as strategic thinking and planning, which every church community needs to have equal parts of to move forward well. We see strong and humble leadership in verse 14. Nehemiah gathers the people and declares, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Sometimes it's just we need that strategic reminder from leadership that God is in charge here and that, that we're doing this together. And then we see this, uh, we see attentiveness here. Verse 22 and 23. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I or my brothers, my servants, nor men of the guard who followed me 
None of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. There's sometimes when being a believer, when being a member, a tender at a church, requires some extra effort. It requires us to be attentive. Life, encouragement, challenge, at the right time and in the right way, cause us to be engaged. I remember just a while back, you know, we studied um, Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, putting on the armor of God, teaching us how to engage in spiritual warfare, in prayer. So there's, there's these connections from Nehemiah into the New Testament. So when all is said and done, as we move towards celebrating communion, when all is said and done, we find the enemy, we fight the enemy of discouragement by joining the mission of God. Some of you are already knee-deep, waist-deep, shoulders deep in the mission of God. And for some of the rest, it's time. It's time to get involved, actively involved. We fight the enemy of discouragement through facing the opposition. Sometimes it starts with facing the rubble in our own lives, acknowledging that. This is rubble. I've been, I've been languishing here for a long time. So I'm going to get in a community group, I'm going to talk to some people, I'm going to pray, I'm going to engage, I'm going to share, I'm going to be honest and transparent and real. It's time to move forward. Responding with prayer, planning, humble leadership, and being attentive. Sometimes we get so, it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? instead of being attentive to what God is wanting and doing and up to and desiring, whether it's for your life or your marriage or your kids or your grandkids or whatever else, to be attentive to what God is doing and what He is up to.